Hi, this is Geeta Nandikotkur, Managing Editor for Asia and Middle East with Information Security Media Group. I caught up with Zulfikar Ramzan, Chief Technology Officer at RSA recently in Bengaluru. During the RSA summit to discuss the current challenges CISOs are facing in tackling new threats and breach incidents and the new approach they need to take to fight the unknowns. Zulfikar discusses how CISOs need to take a mission or a business-driven end-to-end security approach which enables them to assess and measure risk to address the new threat landscape. Zulfikar, it's always been a pleasure talking to you. Welcome and thanks for joining the Absolutely. discussion with ISMG. And I have heard you a couple of times saying that um, the champ fighter's wisdom rings true in the physical world as well as the digital one. But how do you bring this analogy to the security world and how can CISOs become wartime champs? So I think if you think about... CISOs being successful. And if you think about just in general, in any form of battle, the key to being successful is to know your own strengths and weaknesses and also to understand the overall context that you're operating in. The key to battle is not just how do you fight the battle, are you fighting the right battles at the right times. And today's CISO, I think, is confronted with a situation where there are so many threats that are potentially impacting their environment that they cannot afford to take a threat-centric view because they can easily get lost in which threats to focus on. And so instead, we advocate is that CISO should really think about what matters matters most to their organization. Ask themselves fundamental questions. What is it that I care most about? What am I trying to protect? And why am I trying to protect it? And then, based on that type of information, rather than trying to go after every single threat individually, prioritize the threats that matter most to the organization and prioritize their investments to deal with the threats that matter most. So for example, let's say that you have an organization and you assess that these are the most critical risks. Maybe you have a compliance risk because you're part of a heavy regulated industry. Maybe you are an organization with uh, intellectual property risk because most of what you do is intellectual property. Uh, maybe you're an organization that has operational risk because most of your business operations have to be online for your customers. And so depending on the nature of the organization, there's different risks you've got to consider. Then you take a step back and say, is my security program designed to focus on the risks that matter most to my organization? So for example, you might discover that you're spending a lot of money on application security, and that might not be the most critical thing for your company. Maybe what matters more is putting better fraud detection capabilities in place on your website. Or what might matter more is being able to to monitor what's happening on your internal networks for malicious behavior. And so you might decide that, hey, I'm spending so much money on this one thing that actually has little business impact and I should be spending more money on other areas. And then likewise, when you see threats in your environment, some of those threats may be impacting assets that have no critical business value and other threats might be impacting assets that are absolutely critical to your business. So you've got to make sure that everything you do in terms of the actions you take are very deliberate and are designed to guarantee the most chances of victory. As you rightly said, they need to prioritize. But then again, if you look at each geography, each region has their own culture, mm-hmm. own nuances. And uh, since you are addressing the global customers, what do you think, what has been their priority concerns when it comes to be it application security or is it uh, the network security or XYZ, given that the increased malware attacks or breaches happening? That's a great question. I think every organization has a set of unique concerns. So it's funny, we talk in the security community about the threat landscape. And I think that's a bit of a misnomer. There is no threat landscape. There are threat landscapes. Every organization, every company has a landscape of threats that matter most to that organization. For example, if I am in healthcare and there's a new banking piece of malware, that does not impact my industry. I mean, I can try to protect against it, but that might not be the best thing to do. Instead, maybe for healthcare, maybe they're worried more about ransomware. And we've seen a lot of healthcare 
welfare institutions get attacked by ransomware. So that's a more pressing focus for them as opposed to financial malware. So I think that that's the first step to understand is, hey, what actually matters to me as an organization before I think about anything else? And then once you do that, you can now articulate the right set of responses and the right mitigating controls. Now, having said that, I think there's some common themes we're seeing across every organization. Uh, one of the biggest common themes I'm seeing in the market is the idea of small failures leading to mega failures. So we live in a world that is increasingly interconnected. Supply chains are massively interlinked. We rely on third parties in a way that we never have before. Every organization relies on many, many third parties. And so we could argue that no organization is an isolated atomic instance of itself. Instead, that organization is part of a much more complex and bigger system. The implication from a security perspective is that a small, or what might seem to be a small breach in one part of the system, or a small issue in one part of the system, can have a dramatic ripple effect as it propagates throughout the organization and throughout other related systems. So consider, for example, that one of the biggest data breaches to happen occurred because the attacker stole a password for a third-party HVAC system and used that password to compromise the victim's data center. Third-party risk. Consider, for example, that the cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee, which was not a very complicated cyber attack from a technical perspective, but it led to people questioning the foundations of democracy, not that much later. Uh, consider that the people who made Wi-Fi baby cameras became accessories to one of the biggest distributed denial of service attacks when their cameras became part of the Mirai botnet. In each case, it was a relatively small failure from a technical perspective, but that failure propagated into a much more massive failure when you look at the overall system. And so small failures are leading to negative failures. Those mega failures are leading to mega scrutiny. Security is no longer just something that's a concern for a small minority in the IT department. Instead, we are seeing CEOs, executives, board members deeply concerned about security issues. They are rightfully considering security to be a business problem. And when I talk to our customers, they are telling me that the number of interactions they have with their executives and with board members has gone up both in frequency as well as in depth in terms of the questions that are being asked and the level of information they're expected to provide back about the business value they create. Any specific uh, domains that you you see this happening? So I think it's happening across all domains, but certainly the leading indicators have been the more heavily regulated industries, so financial services, very classic example. I've been now to several major healthcare institutions where I've met with boards of directors at those institutions who have a deep concern. So there's been just level of interest across the board, but I think certain sectors are, are going to you know, see more interest depending on how much cyber security impacts what they do. So given that background, it becomes very clear that incident response is not a part of the wish list. It is a reality mm -hmm. one needs to have. But then there is always a chaos, mm -hmm. right? Because the threats are happening from various sources, unanticipated sources, unknown threats. Mm -hmm. So how do you think they need to plan for this chaos? Right. So obviously planning for chaos has been a big theme of mine for the last year. And so to me, there's three things you have to do to plan for chaos, at least three things. Uh, the first thing is you've got to treat risk like a science, not a dark art. Historically, we've looked at risk and not really paid much attention to it, but I advocate be using a rigorous, consistent way to think about the risks to the organization. That's not to be confused with having a perfect methodology for analyzing risk perfectly, because the reality is that there are many unknown unknowns. The world is constantly shifting. It's impossible to predict everything that can happen. But at the very least, when you think about the risks to your business, you should be thinking about them in a consistent way. And there are a number of formal frameworks for looking at risk in organizations, and I'm not going to advocate any one framework. I encourage customers to think about what matters most to them and what works for them. That's the 
the first critical step. To me, the second critical step is to really simplify what organizations control. The reality is that we see a lot of our customers and they are inundated with vendors. So in fact, I talked to one of our customers a couple of months ago. I was at an executive briefing center meeting in Austin, Texas, where Dell is headquartered. A major customer, one of the top accounts for not just RSA, but for Dell more broadly. And their CISO told me that they have 103 different security vendors. 103 vendors. Can you imagine trying to manage that many vendors, let alone get it? Just that alone is a complex problem, let alone getting anything done from all those vendors. Now, obviously, this is a customer with big budget. They understood how to manage security. But as you can imagine, just the complexity of that many vendors is astonishing. So if you are in a chaotic situation, you have complexity already, it's very hard to deal with it. So what I advocate is figure out, number one, which vendors actually provide value to you. And if they don't provide value, remove them. You know, don't adopt a, a no vendor left behind policy like some of our customers I've seen do. Um, yeah, figure that's out, really subjective, it providing is. value. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely subjective. Um, but I think that if, if you start focusing on what the return on the investment is and start at, because your board is going to ask you that, right? Every time they have to write you a check, they want to know which ones are giving you the best return. It's not always perfect science, but I think you have to start thinking in those terms. Uh, and then try to consolidate and rationalize your vendors so you have fewer vendors. It's going to go a long way. The third thing is to kind of plan for the chaos they cannot control. And to me, the key to planning, I have a, a four-part formula. I call it the ABCDs of planning. So A stands for availability. Your plan, as far as incident response goes, should only appeal to the resources you actually have available to you. Now, this is almost obvious, but I can see, I've seen a lot of companies where, in fact, I was talking to one of our customers, and she had just joined as the new security lead for her organization. So she looked at the incident response plan that was prepared by her predecessor. And the plan talked about products and resources and people that they didn't even have in the organization. So she's like, what kind of plan? How can this be a plan? This is not a, a real plan. This is a wish list. This doesn't make any sense. We have to have a plan that's based on the actual reality of what you have today. The second part of that plan, the B, so ABCDs, B stands for budget. So every one of your incident response plans has to have budget authority because there'll be unexpected costs. Now, this seems like a very simple thing, but sometimes when you're dealing with an incident, you may have some unexpected legal costs. You might bring in some third-party consultants. That is an important aspect of planning for an incident. You can't just expect that this thing occurs and you have to, you can't, you have to spend money to be able to deal with it. Your response plan has to account for that and know how to actually get the funds that you need. Maybe they're earmarked. Maybe you work with your CFO and you deal with it that way. So that's, that's A is availability, B is budget, C is collaboration. So whenever an incident occurs, it becomes an all-hands-on-deck moment. Uh, the reality is that whether you're in sales, you're in finance, you're in legal, you know, you are in IT, every person plays a critical role during an incident. And I'll give you an example. IT might be dealing with cleaning things up. Your sales team might be responsible for talking to customers. Your marketing team has to be the one developing the messages that the sales team can use to talk to customers. Your public relations team might have to worry about talking externally about what happened with regard to the attack. Your legal team might be involved if there are some legal implications of the attack. If there's a data breach, there might have to be notification. If there was intellectual property stolen, they're going to be involved. Your risk management team might be involved as a compliance implication because of the attack. And so as you can see, when these incidents occur, it's not just one party that's affected. It is an entire company motion. It becomes an all-hands-on-deck moment. And I bring this up because if you are in security, you have to form the relations ahead of time. You know, Trying to make introductions when an attack occurs is the wrong time. Those introductions have to be made well ahead of time so that you can actually execute properly. So we have availability, budget, and collaboration. And the D stands for dress rehearsal, meaning that the first time you execute your plan shouldn't be when the incident occurs. You should do an early fire drill. Understand whether the plan works in your environment. We call it maybe tabletop exercises. Bring the right people together. And this is the point that I, you know, I can't 
emphasize enough because the reality when it comes to security is that oftentimes the security practitioner has the responsibility but not all the authority. For example, let's say that I identify as a security practitioner that there is a server which has a vulnerability that must be fixed. As a security person, I've identified the issue, but I don't own the server. The server might be owned by a line of business. The server might be under the auspices of the CIO. Now I've got to convince a line of business or I've got to convince a CIO to fix something that I recognize as a problem. That can only occur when everyone understands their role during the course of an incident. And I think when you do these tabletop exercises, you begin to identify those governance gaps. Now there are ways to deal with that. You know, you could, for example, at a governance level, have every business leader incorporate certain security objectives as part of their broader business goals. That can only be driven top down. So I think when you do these tabletop exercises, when you engage in those dress rehearsals, you identify the governance gaps and the process gaps that are critical, and you can start to put some mitigating measures in place or really focus on how do you align everyone around a common set of incentives. So those are the four key points, availability, budget, collaboration, and dress rehearsal. Those are to me the ABCDs of how do you plan for the chaos you cannot control. Yeah. So the challenges that you spoke about and the priorities that they need to focus on. So what are the kind of innovations? What are the innovations happening in the security domain which they need to leverage? Sure. So, you know, it's funny. Right now, we've heard a lot about a lot of great buzzwords. I mean, there's machine learning and AI and then there's blockchain and a bunch of other things. I actually push back and say... uh, before you think about innovation, think about whether that innovation matters to you as an organization and what it's actually accomplishing. So I have a bit of a litmus test. I mean, I'm a, I'm a technical person. So when I hear about people claiming very fancy innovations, my first goal is to actually, as a, as a technologist, to understand the actual technology and to ask some fundamental questions. Number one, is what you're doing actually innovative? And AI is, by the way, a great example. So RSA has been using machine learning and AI techniques in production environments for over a decade for our customers. Now, we never talked about it in detail, primarily because for the longest time, our customers didn't care how we solved their problems. They really cared. Are you solving a business problem? That is their ultimate objective. There was no real emphasis on what techniques are you using. And now we're talking about it more publicly because it seems like that's pe- something people want to hear about. So, But it's not such that new. In fact, AI as a field has been around for many, many decades. Uh, machine learning, you can go back to the 1950s. So people have been talking about this for you know, half a century plus. So there's nothing new about these areas. So the first question is, is it innovative? The second question that you have to ask is, is it solving the problem in some unique way that I'm not addressing before? Oftentimes what happens is that people take a technology and then they try to look for a problem to solve. And you may not need that technology to solve that problem. Uh, blockchain, by the way, is a great example. I've heard people talk about blockchain like it's this amazing thing. It's got some interesting applications, but the reality is that when I see a lot of people trying to apply blockchain, there are already better ways to solve those problems. Like many times, for example, we had one customer that was asking us about this thing called the private blockchain. I was like, well, that sounds to me like a database. Why do you need a private blockchain? I mean, yes, it's a fancy buzzword, but you may not need that technology specifically to solve that problem. So the second question becomes, hey, am, am I actually solving a real problem? And then the third question is, are there some fundamental assumptions that are baked into that technology that are necessary to understand for that technology to be successful? So machine learning, another great example is machine learning is predicated on having good data. Now you can have a very fancy mathematical algorithm, but if the data is not good, it doesn't matter how good your math is, you're not going to be able to extract good insights from bad data. Now people don't often think about that. They get so caught up in the most fancy part of the algorithm that they forget to ask themselves some very basic questions. And then the fourth thing to ask yourself is, even if you incorporate this technology, do you have the right people in place to ensure that you can use that technology successfully? And again, I'll, I'll use machine learning as an example. Let's say that you applied some machine learning techniques and something went wrong. Is the person who's going to investigate that problem, is that person required to have a PhD in machine learning to investigate it? Because those are not people you can find easily. Typically, 
typically you have a customer support person, they may understand maybe very basic stuff about machine learning, but you can't expect them to understand the nuances of the way that a deep neural network works. And so these are important operational considerations. So when I talk to our customers about thinking about innovation in the first place, I always make sure that they ask those four questions. Is it really innovative? Is it actually solving the problem in a unique way that you cannot solve through some more traditional means? Are there some fundamental assumptions you've got to consider? And then have you thought about the operational implications of putting this technology in play? Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you.